you would, turn to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. It is good to be here this morning, is it not? Amen. We figure if we're going to have an Easter, we're going to go big this year. So um, let's pray and we'll get started. Dear Father God, Lord, I thank you, Lord, for this time, Lord. I thank you for this church body, Lord. I thank you for the visitors that are here this morning, Lord. Um, God, I thank you for the joy that we feel. But more than all of that, Lord, I thank you for your son and what he did on that cross and that you raised him on the third day, Lord, and that we have hope because of that, Lord. I pray as a church, Lord, as Christians, that we have a conviction, Lord, a conviction based off your word, that we have a promised future, Lord, a life after death, because you have proven to be truly sovereign over death, Lord. Be with us this morning, Lord. Be with those that may not know you, God. I pray if there's someone in this room or watching online that doesn't have a relationship with you, Lord, that you work on their heart right now. That they would trust in your son and what he did on that cross. And that we would put their faith in him. Just be with us this morning in your son's name. Amen. Well, as a pastor, it's always a challenge to try to pick which passage you're going to preach through on Christmas and Easter because you don't want to be too repetitive. This year, I really want to look at Ephesians 1 and 2. And even though we just finished the book of Ephesians and actually spent a lot of time in Ephesians 1 and 2, I truly believe these two chapters really speak into our cultural moment. What we have experienced this last year and where we're at as a church right now as we head into the future. And so I want to spend some time in these two chapters, and I really have three points. It's a short sermon this morning. Three points. The first point is this, the knowledge of the resurrection. The second point, the reality of the resurrection. And the third point, the hope of the resurrection. So let's start with the knowledge of the resurrection. And before we jump in our passage, I just want to give you the context, what's going on in Ephesians chapter 1, 15 through 23. This is a prayer actually pretty amazing. It's a prayer that Paul was praying for the church at Ephesus, and he was inspired by God to write this prayer out for the church. I believe if Paul was alive today, this is the type of prayer he'd be praying for us, Country Oaks, and for the church universal. So let's look at this. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 15 says this, For this reason... Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that, again, this is Paul's prayer for the church, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God or the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know. Paul prays for the church that they may have knowledge. Knowledge. In fact, he writes it out another prayer in chapter 3 of Ephesus, and he prays for the same thing, that they would know, they would have knowledge of the love of God. He doesn't pray that the, the church would 
feel encouraged. He's not praying for protection of the persecution that is going to come to this church. He doesn't pray for jobs, wealth, health, or growth. He prays for knowledge. Look what it says, the spirit of wisdom that their hearts were enlightened, a revelation in the knowledge of him, a knowledge of God. Paul is really praying for strong, correct, sound theology. We know this word here, theology, is just the study of God. Theos means God, and ology means study of. When you put that together, it means the study of God. Look what he says. He's praying for a knowledge of him, a knowledge of God, that they would have knowledge. Paul, we're alive today, I truly believe, especially for the church in America, for our church at Country Oaks, he would pray a very similar pray, prayer that he would pray we'd have knowledge. Now, for a lot of you, that sounds strange, and I just want to be clear. There's a reason why that sounds strange to you. It's because we live in an anti-rational age, an age that emphasizes personal experience and feeling over truth and knowledge. We have been influenced by what's called postmodernism, postmodern culture, and I just want to it's a side note, that's changing, by the way. There's a major cultural shift that's happening before our eyes that really has happened in this last year, in 2020, and it's continually happening right now, and I know many of you probably feel it. We're entering into something else. I like to call it a applied postmodern culture, or a post, as in past postmodernism. But the effects of a postmodern philosophy and ideology are seen everywhere still. Postmodernism claims that there are no absolute truths. That you can't know, there's that word, knowledge, you can't know anything for sure. That there's nothing outside of us that defines us. Therefore, all we have is personal experience, personal feelings, and personal opinions. In a postmodern culture, truth is not outside of us not authoritative. It's found inside of us. It's subjective to the individual. It can be molded into anything you want it to be. Truth has become personal. You've probably heard this say, it's, it's my personal truth or this. It's true to me. It's why before we make any truth claims, we start it with this. I feel or I think or I believe. Truth is personal and subjective, not objective and absolute. And we're seeing the effects of a postmodern ideology everywhere. Listen, our culture is crumbling around us. And I know you feel it. Things that used to be foundationally clear are just gone. We can't answer simple questions anymore. Like, what is gender? What is a man? What is a woman? In fact, if I wanted to come up here and say, I am a woman, no matter what objective truth outside of me says, but I come up here and say, I feel like a woman, our culture celebrates that. What is a human being? 
What is a baby? What is murder? 60 million babies killed because we can't answer these simple questions. What is marriage? What is a family? These are foundational questions for civilization. And we can't answer. We can't even come close to answering them. The best we have is personal opinion. Personal truths. Listen, our foundation is gone as a culture. And it's crumbling. It's crumbling. We live in an age of confusion, uncertainty, doubt, and skepticism. An age, an age that claims you can't know anything for sure. An age of confusion, and this confusion, this is so important, has entered the church. Truth is being attacked in the church. The importance of doctrine, theology, knowledge, deep, sound teaching, deep study of Scripture is being attacked as unspiritual, unloving, not useful, unauthentic, cold, heartless, even prideful and divisive. The postmodern ideology is crippling the church. The spirit of this age is confusion. But listen, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs 1.7 God is a God of clarity, of truth and reliability, of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, the beginning of understanding, the beginning of a firm foundation, the beginning of convictions. Listen, this is so important. As our culture crumbles, we Christians, listen, the church needs to be there pointing people to the truth. Objective truth. Foundational truth. Or as Francis Schaeffer says, true truth. Not this personal truth of your own making. True truth. And brothers, sisters, we can't point people to the truth if the church doesn't take the truth seriously. We don't value truth. We can't point them. That's why Paul prays in verse 16, I do not cease. In other words, I continuously pray this. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know he's praying for knowledge. Concrete, foundational, objectively true knowledge. Knowledge that comes from outside of us. Knowledge that is authoritative. Knowledge that we have to submit to. That is objectively true, not mere opinions or preferences. Knowledge that leads to conviction. I just want to be honest. The church, if the church is going to survive the persecution that is coming, and is coming very soon, 
the church is going to survive this persecution, we are going to need to have strong convictions. Convictions based off the authority of God's word. Not preferences, not feelings, not opinions. Otherwise, the church is just going to fall apart. Listen, feelings are not going to cut it. Paul prays for knowledge. He prays that the church would know two things. First, verse 18, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. That we would know the hope that's been offered to us as Christians. This glorious inheritance that we will receive for us to have put our faith in Jesus Christ. He also prays, though, for a second thing. He prays that we would know, verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead. Paul prays that the church would know the power of the resurrection. Think about this. Paul is consistently, continuously praying, right? Verse 16, I do not cease. He continues to pray that the church would know, would have knowledge of the power of the resurrection. Verse 19, look what he says. The immeasurable greatness, his power, his great might. Verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. God's great power raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Think about this. We're in Exodus right now, and we're learning a lot about Pharaoh. Pharaoh had some power. Egypt was the most powerful nation in the world in Exodus and Genesis, and Pharaoh was the most powerful man. If you think of the story of Joseph in Genesis, Joseph was sold into slavery, right? From slavery, he was put into prison. It's a pretty low position. Pharaoh had the power to raise Joseph out of prison and to seat him at his right hand and make him second in command of all of, e all of Egypt. And that's pretty powerful. Our own president doesn't have that power. He has limited power as of now. Compare that power to God. Jesus wasn't in prison like Joseph. Jesus wasn't in the lion's den like Daniel. Jesus was arrested, beaten, falsely accused, innocent, brutally killed, hanged on a cross, naked and alone, despised, stricken, pierced, condemned, and crushed by God for our iniquities, for our sins, according to Isaiah 53. Jesus was killed. He was dead. He was in the tomb. His body was a lifeless corpse. Then three days later, God raised him up and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Talk about a lowly position, right? Dead. In the tomb, right? A corpse. Raised, literally, to the heights of heaven. The highest position there is. The right hand of God. 
In fact, look what it says in verse 21. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. That's a Jewish idiom for angelic beings. In other words, he has authority over the heavenly beings. Right? Not just the earthly kings, but even the heavenly beings. That means angels, demons, even Satan himself. And not just above. Look what it says. Far above. Verse 21. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And above every name that is named, not, in this, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Just awesome display of power and authority from death to the name that's above all names in this age and even the one to come. Amazing. But here's my question, and this question I want you to think about as we go through this whole passage. Why? Why did Paul so badly want us, the church, to know this power? Why would Paul pray nonstop over and over and over again that the church would have knowledge, would know the power of the resurrection, the power of Jesus being dead to seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly places? Why? Well, look at the very next verse. Ephesians 2, verse 1. And you were dead. And you were dead. This brings me to my second point this morning. The reality of the resurrection. The reality of the resurrection really starts with the reality of death. Death honestly, is the main reason I picked this passage this morning. There's no passage I have preached on more than Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. There's two reasons that's true. The first reason is this. It's my favorite passage. Second reason is this. It's the gospel. It's the good news. In fact, it's the clearest explanation of salvation in all of Scripture. It's the passage that's right at the heart of Scripture as a whole. And it starts like this. You were dead. The reality of the resurrection has to start with the reality of death. And the reality of death starts with the reality of sin. Listen, death is an enemy. It's a curse, in fact. Death was not a part of God's original creation. It was a punishment for sin and rebellion. The Bible is very clear on this. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin... Is death. In other words, what we have earned because of our sin is death. 1 Corinthians 15, 21. For by a man, that's Adam, came death. In other words, because of Adam and Eve's sin in the garden, the penalty was death. The death was a curse on Adam. Genesis three nineteen says this. By the sweat of your face you shall eat, eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust. And to dust you shall return. In other words, Adam, because of your sin, you are going to die. Because of sin, we live in a fallen world. A world surrounded by death. You just look at the history of mankind, it's death. Murder. War. Genocide. Diseases. Viruses. 
Listen, before 2020, as a culture, I really believe we did everything we could. We did our best to just ignore death. It's kind of like the elephant in the room. We all knew right about death. We all know we're going to die. We just try our hardest to not think about it. That's what we did. We filled our lives with all types of distraction, toys, entertainment, to numb the reality of death. This last year, 2020, the talk of death was everywhere, right? I mean, 2020, we were bombarded with the threat of death. Every day I watch the local news, and this is the local news, and every single day there's a death count, a daily count of how many people have died. A daily count of how many people died in Kern County, a daily count of how many people have died in the state, daily count of how many people have died in our country, a daily count of how many people died in the world this last day. I mean, when have we ever done that? I, not in my lifetime. 2020 has exposed our culture's greatest fear, and that's suffering and death. In fact, secular society has no place for suffering and death. Right? Secular society, a society without God, and, and life after death. The only thing you can do with death and suffering is avoid it at all costs. And as a culture, this last year, we have proven that we would do anything to escape the slightest possibility of death. And we shut down everything. Can you imagine in 2019 if we told you what would happen in 2020, what you would have thought? We destroyed businesses. We shut down schools. We closed churches. There's some churches that haven't been open. This is their first Sunday, been open over a year. This one gets me. We won't allow people to go visit people in the hospital. When my mom was in the hospital, they had to sneak my dad in there just to see her. Told people to stay six feet apart. Listen, nothing we do is going to solve the problem of death. Not vaccinations or modern medicine. And don't get me wrong, I'm very thankful for both those things. It's not going to solve the problem. No amount of money or technology. Listen, we are all going to die. Death is a reality we all have to face. This year, our culture was confronted with the threat of death, and we panicked. 2020 has exposed our greatest fear. Thankfully, Scripture has the solution. The Word of God has the solution. Look at verse 1 again. And you were dead. In Greek, that word is nekros. There's a couple different words for dead. There's some of them mean dying, some mean on their deathbed. Nekros means corpse. Right? It means dead corpse, dead body. And you were a corpse in trespasses and sins in which you once walked. How were you dead? Well, it's spiritually dead. How do I know that? Because verse 2 says, in which you once walked. In other words, you're physically alive because you're walking, but you were spiritually dead. 
the Bible, there's actually three types of death that are talked about. Before salvation, all three apply. The first one is physical death, which we're familiar with. We're all going to die one day physically. The second type of death is eternal death, sometimes called the second death. That's eternity in hell. Eternal punishment for our sins, a just punishment. The third type of death is called spiritual death. What is spiritual death? Well, before salvation, we were dead in our relationship with God. We were lifeless to God, unable to respond to God, unable to do God's will, unable to desire God. We were a dead corpse towards God. One commentator put it this way, spiritual death means that the most vital part of man's personality, the spirit or the inner man, is dead to the most important factor in life, and that's God. And Paul uses the word net cross, again, corpse, not dying, dead in the tomb, completely spiritually dead. Verse 2, following the course of this world, following the prince, the power of the air, that's Satan, by the way. The spirit that is now at works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We're dead, lifeless, destined for judgment. By nature, children of wrath. That word wrath is the genitive of destiny. In other words, children destined for God's wrath. Children destined for hell. Again, you want to talk about lowly position. Before salvation, we were dead corpse spiritually, living in the realm of trespasses, living in the realm of sins, following the course of this world under Satan's dominion, under the spirit that's found in the sons of disobedience, living in the lust of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body, carrying out the desires of our mind, by nature, destined for wrath, destined for hell, utterly hopeless. And comes two of the most beautiful words in all of Scripture. We know them, right? Verse 4. But God. But God. Look at verse 1. And you. You know what that says? This is what you did. You were dead. That was your part in this. Dead in trespasses and sins. That's what you accomplished. Verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. In other words, he raised us from the dead. By grace you have been saved. This is a free gift. It's grace. That's what grace means. A free gift. In other words, you didn't earn it. You were dead. You were a corpse. Purely by God's grace, you were given spiritual life. Look what it says in verse 5. Made us alive together with Christ, verse 6, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Look at Ephesians 1.20. Again, what it says, this is what Paul prays, that we would have knowledge of this. He, that's God, raised him, that's Jesus, from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Now look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6. God has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's an amazing sentence. The subject is God. He's the one acting. He's the one working. And we're passively receiving this great gift of life. Which brings me to my third and final point this morning. The hope of the resurrection. 
verses 5 and 6 are just incredible verses. There's three verbs. God is the subject of all the verbs. He's the one acting. There's three verbs. Verse 5, God, the subject, made us alive. That's the first verb. He made us alive. Second verb is found in verse 6. God, again, the subject, raised us up with him. The third verb, again, found in verse 6. God, he's the acting one. He's the one. He's the subject. Seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Here's the amazing thing about these three verbs. All three are in the past tense. Even the third one, he seated us with him in the heavenly places. Why would Paul use past tense here? Listen, here's why. It is so certain that we will reign with Christ in the heavenly places for eternity to God. It's like it already happened. That's how certain it is. That's what the resurrection tells us. Because of the resurrection, we Christians have no need to fear death. And that's why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 55, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The resurrection took the sting out of death. Listen, Christ's resurrection has shown us that God has the power over death to bring life to the dead, to raise the dead. Christ's resurrection shows us that Christ's work on the cross pleased God. He paid the price for our sins. God's justice was satisfied. God's wrath was satisfied. And therefore, we are welcomed and adopted into God's family and death Death, physical death, is no longer our enemy. In fact, death is just a pathway now. It's a, it's a doorway to a true life. So I want to go back to this question. Why does Paul so badly want us to know, to know the power of the resurrection? Well, I want to answer this by talking to two different groups of people that are listening this morning, here in this room or online those that are believers and know they have a relationship with God and those who know you're not a believer or maybe you just don't know where you're at with the Lord. Let me start with the Christians this morning, those that believe and know you have a relationship with God. Listen, God wants you to know the power of the resurrection. He wants you to know the power of the resurrection because he wants you to have an unshakable confidence and boldness in your salvation. Paul wants you to have knowledge, a conviction that you were dead, but now you're alive in Christ. And your future is guaranteed. That physical death is now just a doorway to true life. To live is Christ, to die is gain. But let me add this, and this is super important, I think, for us as a church to hear right now. This is a warning. If we're going to survive as a church, and I'm talking about Country Oaks, I'm talking about any church around, but Country Oaks, I'm talking to you. If we're going to survive as a church, when persecution comes and it's coming, we need strong convictions. Based off knowledge, not personal opinion, not personal feelings, but knowledge 
based off God's authoritative word. I just want to say this. You know, we opened up in May, I think, of last year. We opened up as a church, and we decided not to close down again. That wasn't a political stand. I just want to be clear on that. It wasn't because it was our constitutional right to meet. It was because of a conviction that God has called us to come together as a church and worship him. We need strong convictions that are based off knowledge, off the word of God. Now, if you're not a Christian this morning, I want to talk with you, and I just want to be as honest as I can. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. We're all sinners. Death is your enemy. You're in danger of all three types of death. Spiritually death, right? Spiritually dead, you are separated from God right now. Physically, physical death, you will one day die physically. And eternal death, the second death, is where you're heading because of your sins. But here's the good news. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God is offering you life this morning. And he's proven to have the power to give life by raising Jesus from the dead. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes has faith, whoever believes in him, should not perish, in other words, die. And that's the second death for eternity in hell, but have eternal life. Look what it says in Ephesians 2.8, For by grace, a free gift that's offered to you, for by grace you have been saved, through faith, that's belief. Salvation is a gift and it's received by faith. By trusting in Christ, who lived a perfect life, who died on the cross for your sins, and who was raised on the third day to prove, to prove he truly is the way to life. Put your faith in him. Trust in him this morning. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Dear Heavenly Father, God, Lord, I am just in awe of your grace, God. That we who rebelled against you, that sinned against you, Lord, that you told us this will lead to death, and we went there anyways. You made a, a way to life, and you did that by sending your only son to die on the cross to take our place. And then you bring us to life. Bring us to a relationship with you. Adopt us into your family as sons and daughters. And promise an eternity with you of everlasting joy. God, I pray that we're always in awe of that. That we're always in worship because of that. And Lord, I pray for our church that we have the conviction to stand on your word no matter where that leads. God, I pray we value truth, not personal truth, not feelings, 
but truth that's outside of us as authoritative, Lord. And I pray that truth encourages emotions. That our feelings and emotions are based off of truth, a strong foundation. And that we are passionately in love with you because of what you've done for us. I thank you, Lord. I pray that we truly know the power of the resurrection. Amen.